Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Uh, this series is called Romans 8, so we're going to study Romans 8, and that makes sense, right? Some of you have probably read Romans 8 this week in anticipation of that. It's page 786 in these Bibles, if you don't have your own Bible with you. Page 786 on the ones. I want to I start off by showing you this picture right here. Take a look at this picture. It's kind of hard to see a little bit, but you see uh, about in the center of the screen, there's a guy uh, walking down this road. If you look just to the left of him, there's three people laying on the grass. You see those three people laying on the grass? You can kind of see the one in the middle, that's me. Um, And this was, I'm the pasty white legs, um, passed out asleep. That's me. So uh, this was taken in June of 2014. It was during a running race, a relay race from Madison, Wisconsin to Chicago, Illinois. And we were laying there uh, waiting for our next van to get to this stop at Indian Trails Elementary School in Highland Park, Illinois. And uh, the Bing van drove by (laughs) and had the camera going. And so uh, at some point I thought, I'm going to have to go back and look later and see if they captured this picture of us like passed out in the grass from exhaustion, I want to say, not from anything else, all right? The only chemicals in my system were Gatorade at the time, I promise you. Um, But why am I showing you this? Well, you know, artist Andy Warhol famously said that uh, every person will be world famous for 15 minutes. And I'm hoping that this isn't my 15 minutes of fame on the Bing Maps site, but I was reminded, like, what did we ever do before sites like Bing Maps or Google Maps or Google Earth where you could, like, zoom back on the Earth and look at things from an overhead perspective? You ever think about that? Like, before, these, before the Internet, before all of these sites maybe 15 or so years ago, if you wanted to get a bird's-eye view of what the Earth looked like, you had to go up in an airplane, an actual airplane, right? And you had to be able to see. And, and some of you probably remember your first time flying and going up and saying, oh, that's right there. And that's, I remember uh, when I was um, 15, we took a trip to California and flew out of Indianapolis Airport. And when we came back, you fly right over the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And uh, seeing just how large that looked from the sky when you're flying into the airport, and then seeing how close, because I lived on the west side of Indianapolis at that time, how close it was to my house. It's like, that seems like an impossible walk or bike ride to the track, but man, that's really close when you look at that. And so sometimes it really helps, doesn't it, to, to get a layout, to zoom back and maybe look from up above at something. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because Romans 8 is a great chapter of the Bible where we get to kind of zoom back and look from up above, get a big picture view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It gives you a bird's eye view of what it means to be a Christian. And so if you are uh, not a follower of Jesus and you're here, I'm so glad you're here. Because this five-week series is really going to give you great insight into the kind of life change that you can expect if and when you decide to let Jesus be the ruler of your life. And if you're already a Christian, we're going to talk about how, you, how you're set free and how you are empowered by the Holy Spirit and how you're adopted as a child of God and how you can be redeemed and, or given great value and how you are loved by God as one of his own. And so this morning in particular, I want to talk about, to see for those of us who are in Christ, that we are free that we are free. Paul's going to talk about how we are free from the bondage of sin, free from the fear uh, that we once experienced. Paul's going to remind us that at one time we were slaves, but now we're not any longer because we're free if you are in Christ. And so before we dive in headfirst into Romans 8, um, there's a little background we need to do a little bit because uh, we commonly call this the book of Romans in the Bible, but it's not a book at all. The truth is it's a letter 
this is a letter written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Rome, in the city of Rome. Um, and uh, let's remember that when Paul wrote this, he didn't write the little numbers that are in our Bible now. And so he didn't intentionally say, hey, you know what? When I start this sentence, this is going to be an important place, so I'm going to start a new chapter here and make it Romans 8. That's not how it works. And so instead, what, ha- what we find is that when we start with Romans 8, uh, the good thing is, is it's a really deep and rich chapter. But the bad thing is, like, we're starting in the middle of somebody's letter. And so it's important to go back and look at what came before. In fact, the first word in Romans 8 is the word therefore. And some of you know Pastor Rick Warren always says, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to go back and look what, see what it's there for. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to get caught up before we get to Romans 8. And so here's what you need to know. Before surrendering his life to Jesus, Paul was a Jewish man. And in fact, he was what was known as a Pharisee. That means he was an expert in the religious law. Think of Paul like a lawyer. All right, but not like a lawyer in the civil law or the criminal law, but a lawyer in religious law. And so he was a man who argues cases. And part of his uh, life's journey before he uh, ran into Christ was he would run around his hometown looking for people, looking for Jewish people who weren't obeying the religious law, and he would call them out and, in fact, prosecute them. And so uh, how did a guy like that end up being one of the greatest evangelists for Jesus the world has ever known. Well, it's a fascinating story, and if you have time this week, you should go to Acts chapter 9 and read Paul's story of how he was converted from a Jewish Pharisee into a Christian evangelist. It starts at the very beginning of Acts 9. It starts with these words. It says, Paul is breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. That's where his story starts. And so just sidebar, if you're here today, you think there's no way I'm ever going to become a Christian. Or if you've got somebody in your life that you think there's no way they'll ever submit to the gospel. Paul was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. That's where his story starts in Acts chapter 9. And by the end of Acts 9, he has had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, which was a problem, by the way, because Jesus was dead. He had already died, and Paul knew that. But he has this face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and Jesus says, you're going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel or the good news to the Gentiles. And Gentiles were all the non-Jewish people in the world at the time. And, and so Paul goes from breathing out murderous threats against Christians in one chapter to being the chosen instrument of God to take the gospel to the rest of the world outside of Jerusalem. Whoa, that's a big life change, right? And so if Jesus can do that for Paul, he can do it for anybody that you or I know. Now, why is this important? Because the church in Rome is filled with Gentiles. It's filled with non-Jewish believers, The church in Carmel is generally filled with non-Jewish believers. Most of us didn't grow up in the Jewish faith and then have to make a decision about what we do with Christ, right? And so what Paul is writing to the church in Rome is incredibly uh, relevant for you and me today. So Paul's this religious lawyer, okay? So it makes sense that what he's writing kind of looks like and feels like a legal document. You read the book of Romans, what you'll see is like he writes like a lawyer presenting a case, But then the further you read, you realize we're not sitting in the judge's seat like he's presenting this case to us. We're sitting in the defendant's chair, and Paul is presenting a case against us. It's almost like, um, how many of you are old enough to remember Perry Mason? Anybody watch Perry Mason? A few of you, I know, don't, I, you don't want to date yourself, but Perry Mason uh, was a lawyer, and there's always, there's, there's a lot of times there's this moment where he'll say, do you see the perpetrator anywhere in the courtroom, and the person will like, yeah, he's right there, and point to him, and like the whole crowd gasps. (gasps) 
That's what happens in the book of Romans. Paul is presenting this case, and all of a sudden he says something like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like he's, he's pointing a finger at, at you and at me. He's saying, you know what? All of us, in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short. And then he goes on to say this. He says, and you know what? The, the, the wages of sin is death. And so it's like Paul is pointing at us and saying, hey, you've fallen short, and what you deserve for that is death. He's effectively saying, you, you in the church. Now, remember, he's writing to the church. You in the church, you've committed crimes against God, and the punishment you deserve for those crimes is death. Now, what's important to note here is this isn't just me standing up here telling you, right, that you deserve death for what you've done. This is God's inspired word, the Bible, telling us, everyone, that me and you, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we deserve death. This is a sentence handed down by God. This is a real uplifting book, isn't it? It makes you want to read the first seven chapters of Romans, right? This is what Paul is saying. Now, at the same time, there's another case. There's something else that's happening here in the first seven chapters. Paul is building another case at the same time. He's kind of weaving these two together, and he's saying, while you are not worthy, there's a God who is trustworthy and true. And so at the same time he's building this case against us, he's building this case for God, that he is on a mission to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is important for us, and you'll see why in a few minutes, but it was especially important for the Christians at the time that were Jewish believers. Uh, most of the Christians in the world outside of Rome, most of the Christians in the world at that time came from the Jewish faith, and they were used to following something called the law. Now, the law is basically the statute spelled out in the Old Testament about how to live. There are the Ten Commandments, sure, that's what we usually think of when we think of the law, but there were many more than that. Uh, most experts agree that there were more than 600 laws in the Old Testament, and the most common figure you'll hear kicked around by religious experts is 613, that there were 613 laws that God had laid out for his people about how they should live. Now, now this is really the definition of sin, the 613 laws in the Old Testament. Now, the idea was that if you were following all 613 laws at the same time, that you were good. And if you broke one of those laws, as long as you made the payment that was called out in scriptures for that, then you were good. But Paul, who didn't make this up, all right, he took this from a page in uh, Jesus' book, he wants to set the church straight on this. And so in Romans 3.20, he says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. So he says, all that stuff you're trying to do in following all that law, that's not what's going to set you free. That's not what's going to make you righteous. He said the law just serves to show us how far, how far short we fall. So Paul writing to the church, to the most religious, most self-conscious, rule-following people, and he says, hey, the rules can't set you free. Rules can't make you righteous. Basically, he's talking about rules um, like they're a speed limit sign. If you think about this, the speed limit sign, what does it do? It doesn't restrict your behavior, for most of us anyway. It only, shows to, it only goes to show us uh, how far short of the law we're following, right? And so there's a speed limit sign on this road right here, uh, Old, Old Meridian Street, that says speed limit 30, and nobody goes 30 down that road, right? Sorry for my police officer friends in the room. Uh, everybody goes 35 or 40. But right over here on US 31, there's another speed limit sign that says speed limit 55, and nobody goes 55 on that road, they all go 60 or 65, right? Except that there's police cars all up and down that road, and so sometimes people go 57, <laughs> right? But, which, which is still more than 55, right? I think if my math is good. But 
But nobody goes 57 down this road. Why? Well, they're both breaking the law, right? But the speed limit signs just show you how far short, or long in this case, that you are of the law. Right? Basically, he's saying, this is what the law is like. This is what the law does. The problem is the law can't tell us how to live, or it can tell us how to live, but it can't make us live that way. And so we see the law as a guideline, but we constantly fall short. And what that does is it produces in us guilt, right? It produces guilt in us. It produces, we feel condemned. We feel like uh, we've done something wrong. Now, Paul knew all about this. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He knew all about condemnation. He knew what it meant to put all of his hope in the law. In fact, for the Pharisees, it wasn't enough that they lived by the 613 laws in the Old Testament. They were so caught up in the law, they had to make their own laws to help them follow the 613 laws. So, uh, so for instance, one example of this is there is one law in the Old Testament that says that you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath is a day of rest, right? But the Pharisees said, well, what does that mean, really? What does it mean to honor the Sabbath? It means that we can't work. Well, what is work? You've got to define work. Well, one example of work would be carrying a burden. And so we're not allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees would go even further and say, well, what is a burden? What does it mean to carry a burden? So here is one Pharisee's definition. This came about uh, in the silence. years between the last of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. There were 400 years. You probably heard it called 400 years of silence. Here's one rule, one example of how the Pharisees design, uh, designed a rule to define what it meant to carry a burden. So they said, uh, here's the maximum burden you can carry on the Sabbath. Food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, or read enough to make a pen. If you carried any more than that, according to the Pharisees, you were breaking the law of the Sabbath. So they spent endless hours arguing whether a man could or could not lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath, whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out with a needle stuck in his robe, whether a woman might wear a brooch or false hair, even if a man might go out on the Sabbath with artificial teeth or an artificial limb because he would be carrying a burden, uh, if a man might lift his child on the Sabbath day was an argument. These to them were the essence of religion. And you know that God has to be sitting up in heaven going, I just want my children to have some rest. And we're making all these rules as the essence of religion. Why? Because religion is a simple as a system of rules and regulations to be followed. One definition says it this way, religion is man's attempt to please God by adhering to the rules and regulations. But you can't do that. You can't please God that way. That's what Paul is saying. And this is why at Genesis, we are constantly reminding people all the time, Christianity is not about earning God's favor. It's about a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you can find grace and forgiveness. You can find your way back to God because of Jesus and because of the work he did for us on the cross. And so Paul understands this problem with religion. He, he spends a lot of time saying, here's what I used to do, here's how I used to be, and here's where I am now, and here's what I understand now. And he remembers the way he used to live, and he tells the church how Jesus changed all of that. And Paul knows that you and I are not made right by God by following rules, that a relationship with God is not religion, that Paul lost his religion when he found Jesus. And that's why it's important to know that religion leads to condemnation, but a relationship with Jesus leads to salvation. And that's what Paul spends the first seven chapters of Romans outlining. Can you see how it would be easy to forget that? 
That's why it's so important that we come back to this truth again and again, because if we don't, our default is going to be uh, this idea that Christianity is all about the rules. Like, I've got to follow the rules. I can't break the rules. I can't, can't go to church with people knowing I, I'm breaking the rules. I, like, like, we're like Pharisees. We take all of God's laws, and we mix in some of our own, and we build this list of uh, things to do and things not to do, and we say, well, that's Christianity. That's what i got to do. I'm going to follow the rules and not do the things that I most do. Don't, don't we do this? Aren't we all guilty of this? Why do we do this? I think for many of us, we, need, we feel like we need a measuring system. Like we want to compare ourselves to other people. And we go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing okay, but this person, they're really bad. And so I'm doing better than them at least. And so it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? And so as long as I'm keeping this rules, and I guess I'm okay with God, so I'm not going to watch R-rated movies. I'm not going to steal. You know, don't, don't drink, cuss, or chew, or date girls that do, right? And so if we, if we do that, we're good. And I'm okay with God that way. Can you see how we come up with these lists and they make us feel like we're right with God? Paul warns against that. He says, no, that, that one of the marks of someone who loves the law is that they love labels. They love labeling people. And so in Romans 2, Paul criticizes some of the Jews who think they're extra special because they're Jewish. And, and uh, he says, they say that heaven is for them and no one else because they're Jewish. And Paul says, no, it doesn't work like that. And so this still happens today. Think about the people that you meet and you hear talk about that their tradition is the only way. I'm, I'm Catholic, and all the non-Catholics aren't going to be in heaven, or I'm Baptist, or I'm Presbyterian, or they, they base their level of religious sophistication on which translation of the Bible they read. Like, well, it's King James or nothing, right? And if it's not King James, well, it's not really God's inspired word. Or, hey, you can't spell saved without ESV. And so, you know, and so I think... I think people develop this false sense of security uh, in the fact that their parents or grandparents were Christians. Like, I grew up in a Christian house, and so I know I'm good. And what has that got to do with you? It's not about your tradition. It has nothing to do with your family or whether you went to Christian school. It's not about the label. It's whether you have a relationship with Jesus. That's what matters. And then uh, Paul lays out this case against us and against religion and for God, and then he gets to Romans 7. We're almost to Romans 8, I promise. Uh, this is series is called Romans 8. Somebody told me backstage it should be called Romans 8-ish. Um, but I think it's so important that we understand what leads up to Romans 8 because the first line in Romans 8 is so powerful, and I want you to be ready for it. I want, you to, I want your heart to be ready for something new and exciting. And so Paul lays out this case against us and against religion and for God, and then he gets to Romans 7 where he see he's not just the prosecuting attorney, he's one of us, he's a defendant too. And, in, and what Paul writes in Romans 7 is so brilliant and it's so relevant for us today. I just want to put this on the screen and, and let you see this. I want you to soak it in for a minute. Paul says this. This is him talking about himself. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Aren't you glad that's just Paul? <laughs> Hear that? It was me. That would drive me crazy. Do you hear that? I don't understand what I do. How many of you thought you've done something and you thought right when you were done, you're like, as soon as you did that, you thought, what was I thinking? It's like that moment when you're closing the car door and you look and you see your keys sitting there on the seat and you know the door's locked and like you're ready to pounce and react, but your brain is saying, hey, what's going on here? There's something happening in this moment. It's almost like it's in slow motion and the car door's closing and then you see your keys and you're like, no, 
and you try to grab the handle and you miss it, you know, and like sometimes our sin is like that, isn't it? It's like you're in the middle of that and you're like, what am I thinking? What am I doing? I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Why am I doing this? Paul knows. Paul can relate. I don't understand what I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. But the things I hate, I do. He has good intentions. He knows that the things he's doing are wrong, but he can't seem to find the strength to stop them in spite of his own best efforts. Paul can't seem to live a righteous life. And doesn't that describe us all? We want to be good. We want to make wise choices. We're trying to do the right thing. Trying. Doesn't that, at, at, at our worst point, doesn't that one word describe our religious life? Like, I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. It just, doesn't it just encompass the spiritual journey that most of us are on? We're trying. I mean, how many times have you experienced victory over sin in your life only to fall back into it later? I mean, how many of us have been trying for months or even years to fight off the same temptations, the same habits, you know, why do I lose my cool with my kids so easily? Why do I treat my husband this way? Why do I have to keep going back to those websites or drinking that stuff or taking those pills? I can't believe I've failed again. We all have these good intentions and we try so hard to live up to God's standard and we, we try to follow the rules, but man, our flesh, our flesh keeps pulling us back into sin and it's overwhelming and we feel condemned and Paul gets it, he sympathizes with us. And this is how he concludes that part of the, the, the chapter. He says this in Romans 7, 24. He says, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. But wait, I want to show you something here. Because that's where most of us stop. Right? Most of us stop with, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. I, I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. But watch what Paul does. He asks this question, and this question is so important it's, it's critical. It's really the difference between followers of Christ who understand what a relationship with Jesus is really about and the religious types who just thrive on guilt and shame, right? See, those of us who aren't following Christ when we feel bad or guilty about something, they stop with what a wretched man I am or what a wretched woman I am. But then Paul asks this question. He says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? What Paul understands, what's inherent in this question in Romans 7 is he says, I'm never going to be able to overcome this myself. I need a rescuer. I need someone to rescue me from this body. I need a savior. He's feeling condemned, right? He's feeling condemned to death. What a wretched man I am. I don't understand what I do. He's feeling that. He, he remembers. He's already told us that we're all sinners and that all our sin is subject to death. And so he cries out, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he answers his own question in Romans 7.25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Watch what he says here. He says, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. In other words, I know in my head I need to follow the law, but that doesn't free me. It just makes me a different kind of slave. But then he says, the alternative seems to be following my flesh, indulging in what he calls here my sinful nature, but that makes me a slave to sin. But then Paul realizes there's the third way. 
right? There's a better way. There's a way out. There's a rescuer for all of us. There's a savior. And so now, finally, we've made it to Romans 8. And Paul says this, therefore, because of all that that I just said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. This is the best news we could ever receive. And, and you know, if you're not yet a Christian, this alone should make you think about becoming one. Because if you are in Christ, Paul just spent seven chapters telling us about everything that we did wrong and that we deserve death and we're wretched men and women. Then he turns the corner, and this is what makes Romans 8 so good. He turns the corner, it's almost like he says, hey, whispering, he, just, he whispers, hey, but if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Wow. Isn't that cool? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's like he says, there's a way out. There's a better way. And this is so good because guilt is one of Satan's strongest weapons in his arsenal of evil. You know you have a real enemy, right? who wants to steal your soul. And guilt and shame are some of the weapons that he will use to, to use against us. He'll do whatever he can do to cause a Christian to question their forgiveness, to doubt your salvation, to simply like fade into the background when it comes to spiritual matters. I know I'm supposed to tell that person about my faith, but you know what? I just failed last night and I'm not good enough. He wants us to have shame. He wants us to feel condemned. But Paul says, no, not with Jesus. There is no, there is none there is zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in the next three verses, which I think is pretty much all I'm going to have time for today, in the next three verses, really the extent of what we're going to study today, he's going to tell us uh, why this is true and how this is true. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Verse 2 says this, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now remember in verse 725, Paul's wrestling with this idea of being a slave to God's law or a slave to a sinful nature. And he says, no, there's a third way, there's a better way. And it's this, when we are in Christ, now this is really important. Remember, the foundation of this verse is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And just as a side note, Romans 8 makes no promises for people who are not in Christ. Okay, if you're walking apart from Christ, Paul doesn't say anything about condemnation or no condemnation. But when you're in Christ, Paul reminds us, we get God's Holy Spirit who comes to dwell inside of us. And here's what he says in Romans 8 too. He says, the law of the Spirit. So remember, he says, the law of God's, the God's law, right? And over here, you've got the sinful nature. He says, there's a third way. It's walking by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we accept Christ. God gives us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us and gives us new life. So in the Old Testament, you probably know this, God set up camp with his people. They built, uh, it's called a tabernacle. It's like a tent where the presence of God would dwell. So uh, God dwelled in, in the middle of his people, in the midst of his people. But then Jesus came along and God no longer lived in the midst of his people, but he lived among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus walked among us. But then when Jesus was leaving, he said, it's better for me to go away so that I can send the comforter, 
the Holy Spirit who will live inside his people. He'll live inside of us and give you new life from the inside. And Paul says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God's spirit has come to live inside you and set you free from that. Now, here's what happens. Our sin still deserves death. That hasn't changed. There still has to be payment for what we've done. But God doesn't make us pay for it anymore. That's why Jesus came in the first place, because God knew that we would still sin. Even with the tabernacle placed in the middle of his people, God's people still sinned. Even with Jesus walking the earth among his people, the people still sinned. And even with God's Holy Spirit living inside of us, we still sin. And God knew that that would happen, right? And he knew that there would be a price required for that. Now, uh, God is a just God, and he knew it wouldn't be fair to just let us off without payment, but he looked over in that defendant's chair, and he saw us sitting there, and he refused to let us pay for it ourselves, so he sent his son Jesus to make the payment. And we sometimes refer to this as the propitiation or the atonement. Those are both really fancy ways of saying somebody else took the punishment that we deserve. Somebody else in the person of Jesus, God took all of your sin and all of my sin and piled it on the shoulders of Jesus who had no sin of his own. Romans 8.3 says this, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus looked like sinful flesh. He looked just like us to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Think about it this way. You and I who were sinners... God took our sin and put it on Jesus, who had no sin of his own. And in return, he took Jesus' righteousness and put it on us, who had no righteousness of our own. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. Why did he do that? so that we can be set free from the flesh. We can be set free from our sinful nature. He says, there's, there's this requirement in the law, and until that's met, you're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to the law, but God sent his son so the requirements of the law could be fully met in Jesus, and we are free to live according to God's spirit. You know, it reminds me of this family, the story I heard of a family who was traveling on vacation. They're, they're in their old station wagon, and a bumblebee flies into the backseat of the car. And one of the children, the son, was deathly allergic to bee stings. Uh, he had been stung before and had an allergic reaction and swelled up. And so when the bee came around, the son started swatting and flailing and screaming and crying like crazy. He became hysterical. And so the dad quickly pulled the station wagon off the road and he sat there. And as the bee came past him, he just reached out his hand and grabbed it. And he stood there for a moment with the bee in his hand, and then you see the dad kind of flinch. And then he lets the bee go. And then his son starts going crazy again, hysterical, and he goes, no, son, no, it's fine, look. And he points to his hand, he says, there's the stinger. Calm down, you don't have to be afraid. His stinger's right there. He can't hurt you now. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to that church, he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You and I are set free from the punishment of death. We're set free from the sting of death, not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, it's one thing to read this. It's another thing entirely to embed it in our hearts, isn't it? And live by it. And so let's just, can we just read this verse together? Let's read this off the screen together. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's do that one more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as we prepare to close, here's what I want you to do. Think about those times in your life where, like Paul, you thought, I don't understand what I do. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I hate, I do. Think about those times in your life where you've thought, what a wretched person I am. What a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. You got that? Now, with that in mind, let's read this one more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for that truth. I thank you that though my sin deserves condemnation, though my sin deserves death, you refuse to let me take the punishment for that. God, what a good God you are. How is it that you could come and use your son to set us free from the punishment that we deserve? I don't get it, but I'm thankful for it. God, uh, as we go through our week this week and we relate so much to Paul and we say, I don't understand what I do. What a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. God, I pray that you would remind us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in you. God, for those in this room who haven't accepted Christ as their Savior yet, I hope that this is encouragement to them. That if they're feeling guilt, if they're feeling shame, if they're feeling condemned, even if they're feeling it from other Christians, God, that you would use today to remind them that in Christ there's no condemnation. That there's no judgment from you. The judgment has already been paid. It's already been executed. It's already been carried out when you hung your son Jesus on the cross and allowed him to die with our sin on his shoulders that you paid the debt that we deserve to pay. God, we thank you for that promise, and we celebrate that today in Jesus' name.